This is a podcast from SPH Radio. I'm Loretta Lopez, and this is True Crime SG, and with me today is Mr. Melvin Singh. Thank you, Melvin, for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Melvin, tell us, where in the new paper did you begin your career as a reporter? I actually started as a journalist with the predecessor of the Channel News Asia. It was called the Television Corporation of Singapore. Right. I was a TV journalist for about two years, and then I joined the new paper in about 1997. And uh, my first love is sports. Uh, but my boss, who's now the editor of Tamil Murasu, Rajendran, uh, suggested with my background, I was a police officer for close to six years. He suggested, you know, I might do well as a new paper. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why not give it a shot? Yeah, that's how I ended up on the crime desk uh, with the new paper. So you mentioned that before you joined the paper, you were the Singapore police force? I started off in Topayo Police Station. And then I was in Badok Police Station, where I was a detective in the anti-drug unit. And then I ended up becoming an investigator. So I've had a range of jobs when I was in the police force. So what did you learn, do you think, as a police officer that you think contributed to your experience later as a journalist? Well, you learn, uh, whether it's a detective or a regular beat cop, or even an investigator, stamina, perseverance, sheer doggedness. You know, when, when, when you sniff out the lead and you're chasing a story, you know, to be relentless, to have the stamina to see the story through to the end. Okay, Melvin, it's time to turn our attention now to the Anthony Le murder case. Annie Leong Wai Moon was a loving mother and a filial daughter. She worked as an insurance agent and was described by many as a good and obliging person. She doted on her four-year-old daughter, Evelyn, and family and friends say the two were very close. Annie was also separated from her husband, Anthony Le. The estranged couple had tried to reconcile a few times during their three-year separation, but eventually Annie filed for divorce. On the night of May 14, 2001, Annie received a call from Anthony. He wanted to meet him at the void deck to sign some papers. Annie brought her daughter with her. However, upon realising that neither of them had a pen, Annie left her daughter with Anthony and returned to the flat to get one. It was on her way back up that she was brutally stabbed by a boy who was just 15 years old. Annie stumbled to her flat and collapsed outside her gate. Her frantic mother called for help. Unfortunately, Annie died a few hours later in Tan Tok Seng Hospital. She was just 29 years old. So my research is based on all the newspaper articles from the new paper covering the case and trial, as well as a book entitled Guilty as Charged. My first question to you, Melvin, is did the police suspect Anthony Le from the start? I mean, is that a natural start place to any murder investigation that involves a spousal death? The short answer to it is always yes. Crimes of passion, uh, in general, murder cases in Singapore are committed by people related or known to the victim. So the short answer is yes, uh, he would be a, you know, a significant suspect uh, right from the offset. Now, he played quite the convincing, grieving husband at Annie's wake. Yes. He was very yes. humble. He was very sad. He admitted to the fact that he had committed adultery, that his wife was the better person. 
etc. Yes. Now, at that point, do you think the police fell for his act? Nah. What What is interesting in that bit? You see, you have to know the mindset of the police. Uh, who's going to outrightly admit to a crime? They would have gleaned from interviews with the victim's family, his nature, he, you know, his past misdeeds. You know, Annie was separated from Anthony. Uh, a large part of it had to do with his infidelity, not once. Uh, also, you know, debt he incurred from failed businesses, etc. He didn't have a particularly good track record. He was known to be a hot-tempered person, mm. uh, smooth talker at the same time. You know, he had certain traits that would suggest that it may, may have been a heated argument, something that could have sparked, maybe not murder at that point, but, you know, maybe an incident out of passion that turned really bad. So he would have been a significant suspect. And even though he gave that interview, and that interview in itself is interesting because what happened was there was a funeral wake held at her home. And at that wake, Anthony, who was you know, not expected to turn up because they were already separated. I think he was living in his flat in Pasiris. She was living in Haugang. He turned up and he was sitting away from the wake. Yeah. Now, new paper had a habit. Actually, most papers back in the day had a habit of, you know, putting a reporter at the funeral wake of a significant event because someone of interest might turn up and help put together a profile of the victim. In this case, the reporter, Tanya Fong, and uh, she was at the wake not so much to wait for Anthony Le, you know, in the hope that something of significant could come out of it, maybe build a profile of any. What happened was, if memory serves me, uh, well, he was spotted sitting a distance away, looking quite despondent. Yes, you know? he was uh, and, uh, separated from the family. Yeah, Correct. And, uh, you know, he had a bad track record with the family, so understandably then. And uh, she approached him, and that was good instinct on her part. And she asked if he was related to her. And he said, you know, I'm the husband, etc., etc. And then became this confessional. You know, he said everything, you know, I don't deserve her. I treated her badly. She was everything I was not. She was such a good person. I'm mm -hmm. such a horrible person, blah, blah, blah. And right at the end, he said something to broadcast a particular message. He said, I am innocent. And the duty editor of the day, Sotek Ming, another very sharp man, uh, this fellow saw, you know, what was a significant story. Did the journalist believe him to be telling the truth? You develop after a while an instinct when a person is making, you know, outlandish claims, etc. You learn mm -hmm. to be sceptical and there, is a, there was always that sense of scepticism, you know. But what was interesting is the CID was actually looking for him mm. and they couldn't find him. The detectives couldn't find him. Now, that's not to suggest he was on the run, but mm -hmm. he could not be found. So the day after the story went out, or the day the story went out, so that's the third day, three days after she was stabbed, I, <laughs> from what we were told, uh, the detectives were all called in by, uh, for a meeting by their boss, mm -hmm. and they were reprimanded, you know. Here's a journalist who was able to find him, and you fellas couldn't find him. That story ended up being hugely significant because there were elements in the story that was later presented in court. But how come the police didn't plant themselves at the wake either? So here's the thing, right? I mean, the police could have been there and, you know, they have left for a few minutes mm. and just in that little window, he turned up, not to right, suggest right. that he was trying to dodge them or anything, 
but there could have been a confluence of many things and right. you know Tanya Fong just happened to be at the right place at the right time but having said that that would be a discredit to her because she saw something you know that suggested she should approach him and mm. that was really good instinct she approached him and when she found out that he is who he is you know she then you know got the story out of it but here again is a well trained reporter she actually verified claims you know that he is Anthony Le that he was the husband separated from any and that's where all your journalism instinct training everything comes together so there were also five other suspects five uh, yeah. youths to be exact uh, a, uh, yes. with ages yes. ranging from 15 to 22 could you uh, yeah. tell us uh, a little about these boys and you know what was their connection to anthony at the time a- anthony was you know like i said was a smooth talker these were just ordinary neighborhood kids you know and they they would hang out in the neighborhood and all and anthony was a character that was often seen in the neighborhood there was a mcdonald's or fast food joint yeah. where these kids would hang out anthony was often there and he befriended them he often had a dog with him he would take a dog out for the walk you know right. and you know bump into these kids and started talking to them they kind of looked up to him because he claimed a lot of things he, at one point i believe he claimed that his job as a this business owner was a cover for his real profession which was you know, that he was some kind of trained assassin and all that right you know? yes the older kids they knew that he was talking a lot of nonsense you know mm-hmm. so they kind of kept their distance you know but the youngest of the lot uh, who was 15 then uh, had known him for about 5 years prior he kind of looked up to anthony as some kind of hero you know Uh, or anti-hero as it were mm. and um, from very early on he suggested to them you know the idea of killing his wife some of them took you know he wasn't being serious about it but he persisted with that you know basically that's how they form a relationship so you mentioned how you know he broached the subject of um, getting them to kill his wife mm. he also did the same thing with his ex-girlfriend yep. two yeah. ex-girlfriends two girlfriends yeah one was a miss ho and another one as a in fact ex business partner also miss tan yeah correct we had i think a brief affair with right yeah so he had a string of affairs uh one of mm. them he was pretty serious with i think it was the miss ho and yeah. uh she moved in with him for a sh- brief period into the into the marital home right with correct, um correct. Annie. Was, yeah 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 but you know at that point Annie was separated from him and all mm. and um the dynamics were difficult because they Anthony and Annie already had a child a daughter a very young daughter i think mm. she was a toddler at that point you know yeah, maybe 3 like years old or so four. so the conversation about killing the wife and all came up in the context of how i think if i recall Ho wanted a divorce meaning Ho wanted Anthony to divorce Annie so that mm-hmm. they could be you know something more concrete you know right and then Anthony said the only way that can happen is if I kill my wife etc mm. uh, with Miss Tan it was different because Miss Tan you know because of the business venture uh, she became suicidal and all you know Anthony broached the idea to her that before you kill yourself you kill my my wife and then you kill yourself at that point why mm. he wanted his wife and they, they were not divorced yet but she started divorce proceedings he why he wanted her dead was never so clear 
let's move on to the trial. Uh, the mm. trial of Anthony Le began on, on the 19th of November in 2001. Mm. He was mm. jointly tried uh, with a 15-year-old yeah. boy, the one he befriended, yeah. the one that knew each other yeah. for a few years, for the murder yeah. of his wife. Now, the boy's yeah. identity, of course, was suppressed as he was a minor at the time. Now, according yeah. to the newspaper articles from the start, it was a really mm. packed courtroom. Why do you think there was such an immense interest in this case? It was, it was very fascinating. Uh, I conduct a basic reporting course. One part of it is caught in crime coverage. You know, I would take the young reporters or new reporters rather to the subordinate courts and show them. And they bumped into a member of public who had popped out of a particular court case that he was watching. I told the reporters about these members of the public who would turn up for these high-profile cases. I asked the member of public, would you explain to the journalist why do you turn up for these cases? And he said, it's drama but better than the one you watch on TV. You know? Oh dear. <laughs> so the thing is, when you have, you know, whether it's a case with salacious details or a case with gory details, it's a tangible. It happened in Singapore. These characters are there in front of you. You turn up in court, you can see them, you can see how they respond. And what was fascinating, I think, with the Anthony Ler case was almost every single picture of him was him smiling. Yes. You know, yes. even the picture that new paper took of him at the funeral wake, though he kind of bent over his wife's coffin and all mm. and attempt to look like he was grieving, the grieving husband, mm -hmm. the other pictures of him talking to the journalist had him smiling or smirking, depending mm. on your disposition. When he was led to the scene of crime, again, he was smiling, led to court. You can see him smiling. He was always smirking or smiling, you know something almost sinister about his appearance. Right. And, and I think all that became a tangible and, and people wanted to see who would do this, who is this kid who would stab a woman to death, all those details put together. And mm. sometimes, well, not sometimes, often, when you give something enough media cover, it becomes absorbing news. People mm. want to follow and right. nothing quite like going to court to see it up close. Now, Anthony Le and the boy, the 15-year-old yep. boy, they both had separate lawyers, right? So defending yep. Anthony yep. was the late Mr. Subhas Anandan and Mr. Anand yep. Nalachandran. And defending yep. the 15-year-old boy was Mr. Edwin Sia and Mr. Peter Ong. And yep. the uh, deputy public prosecutor was Mr. Lo Chong Yao. So there are not only two separate individuals to try, there are also now two separate defence lawyers to fight. Sounds to me like the DPP would certainly have his job cut out for him. So in a situation yeah. like this, might it be a rather complicated trial then? No, I, I don't think you should look at the number of defence lawyers and all. I mean, mm. some accused persons, if they have deep pockets, they would hire an army of lawyers, you know. You have True. a senior counsel, perhaps, and a, a group of other lawyers who would be handling the paperwork, etc., pointing him in the right direction. Mm. The reality is the case was pretty clear-cut. There was motive. We won't call it confessions, but there were condition statements, you know, given to the police by the other kids. You mentioned all the, the other kids. One of them was an adult at that point, 22 or so years old. Yeah. So you've got statements from all those fellas so the idea that killing the wife, though Anthony did not deliver the fatal blow, that was discussed with so many different people. Right. 
you've got the two women he had been involved with, you've got the mm -hmm. kids he had been involved, you know, he was hanging out with. So the evidence there on that front was already overwhelming. And then you had the perpetrator himself, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning the boy who delivered the fatal blow. That boy also provided statements that said it was Anthony who came up with the whole conspiracy. So I think the evidence was overwhelming. No matter how many lawyers you have, I would argue that it was a much harder case for defense than prosecution. Okay, so now six days into the trial, Anthony Le mm. takes a stand. Uh, this would make it mm. about November the 27th. And his defense was, it was all a joke, mm. a dare, if you will. And this was the same defense that he stuck with throughout the entire trial. So take us through how the prosecutor refuted Anthony's claim that was all just a bad joke and that it stemmed from him daring the boys. Well, on the one front, if it was a joke, the joke repeated to many people. True. You know, and, and it was not just one. It was not just the 15-year-old boy. It was the other boys, the two women. That's one part of it. The other part of it was he actually delivered a, a plan, a very detailed plan of where to do, how to do, where to discard the knife, what mm. to say after if you are arrested, you know, where the cameras might be, etc., etc. It was very detailed plan. Uh, if you are making a joke of it, I'm only joking, a very colloquial way of saying I didn't mean to be serious about such a thing, you wouldn't be as detailed. And then there was the practice element. Mm. And what he did, not just with one of the boys, was the idea that you practice stabbing a bolster Mm. with the knife. So if it was a joke, why would you go to the extent of getting the boy to practice stabbing a bolster? All that is demonstrative that was has gone beyond just being a joke. I think one of the things Anthony said in defense to that was he had to do that to, to continue the day or something, to show the boys they were serious, to see who would kind of give in. Correct. His argument in court was very weak. So, you know, one of the things he said was, look, the boys were all talking themselves up, how they were big gangsters, big fighters, and they wanted to be tough guys. And they were all just showing off and telling each other what they had done, the fights they had been involved in. And Anthony mm -hmm. wanted their respect, so to speak, where mm -hmm. he had done even far worse things. But the significant problem was he had very detailed plans. Mm -hmm. And... The day his wife died, many of those things he had planned and talked about took place. Mm. You know, that the killing was going to happen at this particular place, that it was going to be stabbed with this particular type of knife, that it would be hidden in this particular way, etc., etc. You know, it was so detailed and the, the, the action that took place matched exactly those plans. Mm. It's kind of hard to dismiss the whole thing as, oh no, it was just a joke gone, gone bad, you know, so to speak. Obviously, it wasn't. Yeah, and, and he insisted as well that he was in control of the situation because um, yeah. uh, that he never revealed where Annie's, Annie lived and so on and so forth. He even said that he didn't coerce the boy into committing the crime, that he, the boy acted on his own and that he was just as shocked. But what evidence right. proved, right, contrary to this statement was, was as you mentioned, all the teaching, bringing the boy to the house, teaching how to stab a booster. Correct. So the evidence was overwhelming. Mm. And, you know, the case, I mean, from the very start, he already had a very tough case, which is why I said, however many defense lawyers you have, if the case mm. is overwhelmingly weighted against you, you have it tough from the very start. And the evidence was overwhelming. Statement after statement from different individuals who 
don't even know each other mm. that he had talked about killing his wife. Statements from different individuals who know each other that he had specific plans. Then you had specific practice, stabbing the bolster and all that. Mm. It was overwhelming. So whatever defense he presented at that point during the trial, it was really about him proving himself not guilty. Throughout the trial, as you mentioned, he Anthony had a very calm, smiling disposition and he Correct. seemed to have an answer for everything. Whatever he said in court, I think people need to understand that the person can say whatever he wants, he or she wants to present in court with confidence or lacking in confidence. The judge just listens out for the evidence. Mm. It's not how the evidence is presented. It's the evidence itself. So yes, he looked confident. He was smiling. Some would say he was smirking and all that. Mm -hmm. But he was not convincing juries. Mm. <laughs> he was right. convincing a judge who was listening to the evidence. And the right. evidence, again, I say, was overwhelmingly against him. Speaking of that, there were two more pieces of damning evidence against Anthony mm. that obviously mm. confirmed the police's, police's suspicions. Um, there was a small piece of torn-up newspaper that was found yes. at the scene of the crime. Correct. And there were also Microsoft Word files found in Le's computer at home. So could oh, you yes, tell us yes. more about the two, those two important pieces of evidence, starting with the, that small piece of torn-up newspaper? Why was it so important? How did and, it link and, back and, to Anthony Le? Correct. So this is the, one of the wonderful things about police work in Singapore that many people are not aware of. You know, now they see CSI and they know all about, you know, gathering evidence, scene of crime unit, etc. This would be a police detective or a police investigator who turn up at the scene of a crime, spot what looks like uh, papers crowned up and thrown at the side and, oh, think nothing of it. A member of public might not think anything of that little crumpled up piece of paper. But that fellow would be asking, is this evidence? Pick up the paper, look at the paper and say, why is this paper here? What is it doing here? Now, what was significant about it was later it emerged that the boy, to conceal the weapon, the knife, had wrapped the knife in that piece of paper. And subsequently, when they uh, went to Anthony Le and picked him up from his flat, the rest of that same newspaper was in the flat. So it turned out to be damning evidence. And the, by the same measure, when they took his computer and they conducted forensics, the computer has a, you know, with certain documents, right, Microsoft Word, there's an autosave function. Though it had deleted some elements, some parts of it remain on his hard disk. And it turns out that because he believed his phone was tapped, he's delusional or not, he believed the phone was tapped, the boy and him communicated by computer. And some of these things that, though deleted, remain in his system were words that were of significance, uh, you know, uh, how to discard the knife, you mm -hmm. don't do it this way, you do it that way. All, uh, again, strong uh, evidence to suggest there was a plan. Yeah, I'll pay you later. Correct. Now, at one stage during the trial, uh, Judicial Commissioner Tae Yong Kwang, he himself mm. questioned Anthony. Well, he asked Anthony why he did not have a pen that evening of the murder. Um, mm. If you're going to, you know, ask your, your estranged wife rather to sign some mm. documents, why didn't you bring a pen? And mm. also, why did you have to meet so late at night? So the question is, why did the judge decide to ask Anthony uh, these questions? I mean, is this something that's uh, normal? Is this always done? So during proceedings, 
because the judge will try to understand the sequence of events and try to piece together what transpired. Now, the judge, in listening to the presentations from defence and the prosecution side, may spot a little gap where he or she is not clear what transpired in that gap. And they will ask the question to establish, to fill in the blank, so to speak. And it's not an unusual move. It turned out to be a significant question, don't you think? You know, you talk about the plan and everything. You kind of want an idea of why did the meeting have to be late at night under the cover of darkness? Why did you have to get her to go up to the flat alone? Because she came down with the daughter. The boy was actually waiting up there. Actually, the question became significant. Um, you did mention earlier before when we started this conversation, Melvin, that the motive mm. to kill the wife never truly surfaced. But what, in your opinion, was Anthony's motive to kill his wife? It was never established other than the fact that the trigger appeared to be when she decided after the separation that there was no going back. She had started divorce proceedings. Earlier on in their marriage, you know, he had become suicidal after a failed business venture. Mm. And she had saved him, you know. I don't know, you know, if she was being the good wife, etc. What is interesting is she was an insurance agent. Mm. She became an insurance agent, rather. Although it was never mentioned if he would be getting a payout, you know, right. that was a question that all of us had. It was never suggested in any way who would benefit from any insurance that she might have had. Mm. He was in debt. He had failed business ventures. So one would assume that if there was an insurance, he would have benefited from it if he was named as a benefactor. But all this is speculative. Mm. But it does appear that the trigger was when she decided she had enough and filed for a divorce. Now, Anthony was essentially, well, then, you know, pretty much bad news. He was deep in debt, mm. as you mentioned. He was a gambler. Couldn't pay his income tax, credit card right. bills problem, couldn't pay his mortgage even. The list, you know, pretty much goes on. But yet he was able to con three women, and included, right? If you think about it. And a boy as well to commit murder. I mean, how yep. how is that so? He was a smooth talker. I mean, even when speaking to Tanya Fong, you know, there was never he never paused, he never gave reason to believe that he was other than who he presented himself to be, a grieving husband. Mm. But a good reporter's instinct is, is quite unusual. You you know, we always joke that your antenna goes up. Right. You know, you get the sense that this person is not all there, you know. Uh, not telling the truth. So you, you're trained to be sceptical of claims, but certain instincts are, I think, inherent in some people. And in Tanya Fong, it was very clear that he was not telling the whole truth. And he was just a, a very smooth talker, a charmer. He could convince his mistress to move in to his mm. marital home. And at that point, he was not divorced from any. He must have been quite a smooth talker. Do you still think about this case, Melvin? Actually, I had completely forgotten about it for many years until I think it was December 2018, thereabouts, mm -hmm. when uh, Vijayan wrote a report. And at that point, I was already with the Straits Times that the boy, who's no longer a boy, was out of prison after 17 years behind bars. Wow. And the boy was spared the gallows because he was under 18 at the point of the crime. Although he was tried in, in, in the high court, tried still pretty much as a juvenile or rather the sentencing was what would have been a juvenile, you know? And he was held under 
in the president's pleasure. I think he did file for clemency at one point, but he was rejected. And then later, his track record was good. Mm. Uh, while in prison, he was very disciplined. He studied. And if I'm not mistaken, he got his degree while in prison. But 17 years of his life is gone. Uh, I think, if I'm not wrong, about nine years or so after this case, the law was changed so that if you know it happened again, a, a teenager would actually have to serve a minimum of 20 years behind bar, behind bars. Oh wow! You know, oh yes. So this boy lost 17 years of his life, having been conned, mm. uh, having listened and fallen for. He was gullible. Let's mm. let's summarize it that way. He was just a gullible little kid who believed everything this fellow was saying. And he wanted this fella to, I suppose, to give him some respect yeah. because he looked up to Anthony. So he was released from prison, what, two, you mm. said two years ago. That would make him now yeah. 34. Well, he was very remorseful. He had he a written statement, an apology. and yes. Well, let's hope that he makes good. He's still yeah. got a good 40 years in front of him, whoever so, he is. So, you know, I mean, this might not go down well with many quarters, you know. Mm. But at the end of the day, Annie was a victim. Annie's mm. daughter, who's today significantly older, obviously, you know, or she'll be a young adult now. Yeah. She was a victim. Annie's family, they were all victims. But the boy was also a victim. I'd argue that the boy was gullible. He fell for it. He was, unfortunately, he did commit the crime. There's no running away from it. But he's paid his dues. He served his time. He was remorseful, but he was waylaid, misled, seduced by Anthony Le. What is your personal takeaway from this case? So my takeaway is that, you know, on two fronts, it was fantastic police work and fantastic journalism work. And that was Mr. Melvin Singh, copy editor of The Straits Times. Thank you so much, Melvin, for talking with no me on this case. No worries. True Crime SG is a production of SPH Radio. It's hosted and produced by Loretta Lopez. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Podcast, and streaming on Google Home.